Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. And I don't think Attack on the Capitol was on anyone's bucket list, even though, in retrospect, it's so clear that many, many warning signs were there. What happened on January 6th, 2021 at the U.S. Capitol surprised a lot of people, even if, in hindsight, the evidence that something like this could happen was all there. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I think it's fair to say that most people who even have a passing interest in American politics have been transfixed with the latest revelations from the January 6th committee. Today, I'm talking to Andrea Bernstein about Will Be Wild, the podcast she produces with Ilya Moritz that tells the story of what happened on January 6th, 2021 at the U.S. Capitol. Andrea, welcome to It's All Journalism. It's great to speak with you. First of all, tell me a little bit about your career in journalism. How did you uh, get started? How did you end up becoming a podcaster? So I was a longtime public radio journalist. I had worked at the flagship station WNYC since the last century, since even before podcasting existed, since even before pods existed. (laughs) And I had long experimented with different long-form podcasting type formats, documentaries, series, specials. And I had covered politics and government. Long story short, when Trump became president, found myself among a group of journalists, uh, Ilya and I, who were tracking the president's business. And we were in this unique situation of having a president who was a businessman while he was also president. So with our colleagues at ProPublica, we began tracking that And over the course of a year, decided that a podcast slash open investigation was the the format that was made for the moment, because there were so many different bits of things to understand, but that were no one person or one news organization or one journalist had complete access to. So we started Trump Inc., which was an open investigation into the business of Trump. And we did 75 episodes of that podcast, the last one we were editing on January 6, 2021, when notices and tweets began sort of popping up saying the Capitol was under attack. So, yeah, January 6th happened. I mean, you had done, as you said, these 75 episodes. Were you surprised about the events of uh, January 6th? Uh, Shocked, but not surprised. So I think that we had covered all of the ways that Trump had busted through norms and that the kind of normal strictures that were placed on him, he would just bust right through again and again and again. So it really was in keeping of what we were looking for. And, you know, we were trying to figure out how was this transition going to go? And was Trump going to do the sort of normal kind of transition things that people do, which is try to give contracts to their friends or jobs to their friends? Or, you know, what was he going to do? We were trying to game it out. And I don't think attack on the Capitol was on anyone's bucket list, even though in retrospect, it's so clear that many, many warning signs were there. Yeah. And listening to your new podcast, Will Be Wild, where you 
talk about sort of the rise of white nationalism during the Trump presidency. So those elements are kind of there. I mean, you know, I would imagine when Charlottesville happened, you probably did an episode or two about that. Were you tracking white extremism? We were largely not, because we were mostly focused on the president's business deals, on the way that he was actively profiting from his presidency, his family was, his business dealings with Russia and other foreign countries. So, you know, Charlottesville first came up in our podcast because the president at the time in that same press conference where he was talking about very fine people on both sides, happened to mention or wanted the crowd of reporters to know that he owned a winery in Charlottesville. And to us, that was just an example of how Trump's presidency worked, that at that sort of very tense, fraught national moment, he said, by the way, I own a winery in Charlottesville. It's the biggest winery in Virginia, which is not really true or not true. But we really had to go back and look, and that's what we did in Will Be Wild, how Trump, and particularly his Department of Homeland Security, handled the issue of domestic terrorism, the issue of white supremacy. And these issues were not issues that started being challenging for government under President Trump. Previous presidents had grappled with it. Obama had grappled with how far to go in confronting domestic extremism, and a lot of people felt that he had come up short. But this was turbocharged under Trump. And that was really one of the major things that we investigated for this podcast was how did Trump's own government respond to what was really an anomaly for a Republican government? Usually under Republican presidents, white supremacist activity goes down. But under Trump, it went up and it was fanned by Trump. And his own Department of Homeland Security officials recognized the pattern and were undermined, were blocked, had reports killed, were fired, were explicitly told, do not investigate this because it will hurt the president. And to show that he meant it, Trump kept the entire top leadership or the Department of Homeland Security destabilized. On January 5th, he was on his fifth secretary and or acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. So people understood that he would be very inclined to move leadership around if he didn't like pe- what people were doing. And what these homeland security experts spoke to or, or said that we spoke to was that they kept trying to confront the threat and were told very directly, do not do this. So we went back and listened to all those hearings and read all those reports and spoke to the people who were on those committees to really understand how Congress and other oversight and people inside the administration were reacting in real time to the growing threat of white supremacy during the Trump administration. When Trump came into office, I was working for Federal News Radio, working on the website. You know, it's like a business radio station focused on the federal bureaucracy. And so there were a lot of things about, you know, the unusual way that Trump was managing the executive branch. One of the episodes of your new podcast, you mentioned that he liked keeping everybody an acting, you know, secretary or acting deputy secretary or whatever, because, you know, that was a way for him to sort of hold leverage over those individuals. Also, you know, very much controlling the message of the departments that nothing could go out without it being approved. Now, to be fair, you know, the Obama 
administration was also very controlling about its message, and there were a very limited number of people who could speak on the record about particular issues. But this idea of having a, a chief executive come in and, you know, everybody kind of talks about, oh, you know, he's got this hotel in D.C., and he's telling the, the press off and doing all these other things that, that a normal president would do. But, but when you have somebody who's actively disrupting the functioning of, you know, government departments, there, there's kind of consequences. And I think that was one of the things that I appreciated about Will Be Wild is this look at the Department of Homeland Security and how it was destabilized. And, you know, that is something that people don't necessarily think about until something like this happens, when there's an event that I guess some had predicted, but may well have been responded to in a very different way. Do you feel that, you know, did you have difficulty finding people who would speak on the record about sort of the disruption that was going on in the government? Really, we didn't. I mean, it was interesting to us because when Trump was president, people were very, very reluctant to talk. But we were able to get a lot of top officials. You can hear them in the podcast. We spoke to the acting undersecretary for intelligence and analysis, one of the largest intelligence departments in the country, who talked about his frustration about how he had started a program to look at open source intelligence, like social media, and to be able from that to identify when there were going to be threats of violence, white supremacy, other kinds of threats. And, and he noticed, he noticed there was an uptick in white supremacist activity. There was an uptick in Russian interference in the election. And he began beginning in March of 2020 to try to put this out in a report and was told directly by his supervisors, he told us, no, you can't do that. You can't put that out because that will hurt the president. He spoke to us. So we did get, you know, these officials to tell their stories in their own voices. We deliberately did not go for the top, top political people because those people were not necessarily the people that were, you know, making the wheels of government work. Those are the people we wanted to speak to, and we were largely successful in this podcast. I can't remember the woman's name in the um, Department of Homeland Security, the one who was reticent about joining the administration. What was nice about her, and I think the other people who were federal employees that you spoke to, was that, you know, in the federal workforce, there's a, there's a degree of pride and it's sort of this calling. If I'm in this department, I'm, I'm doing these things because I believe in the mission and I'm here to help the government function well. And so you have a couple of people speaking early on in the, in the, the podcast just how they were going to do their jobs and you know, that they were being flummoxed, you know, every step when they were, what they were trying to do was they were sincerely trying to help people. They were sincerely trying to make people aware of this, this growing crisis. You know, after January 6th started, I mean, how quickly did you decide, okay, this needs to be another chapter. This, this needs to be another podcast. It took us a while. It wasn't immediately apparent to us. I mean, I think one of the things that convinced us was, interestingly, there were a number of oversight hearings in the spring of 2021, and they were your sort of typical kind of congressional mess because there were people who wanted to find out the truth, and there were people who didn't want anybody to find out the truth. So, you know, the Republicans on the committees would just sort of yell into the microphone for five minutes about things that were nonsensical, and it became very, very hard to follow and track these congressional hearings. So it began to be clear last year around this time that the congressional pursuit of truth was really going to be lacking. And I think 
that was the moment just about a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago, where we decided we really need to make a podcast that tells this whole story because we can't trust the mechanisms of government to do so. Now, in between them, the select committee was formed. And initially the idea had been there was going to be a nonpartisan commission, but Republicans rejected that. So then they got a committee that was appointed by Democrats, and they said, okay, we're going to offer up our five Republicans, a number of whom were just really people who'd been espousing disinformation. And Nancy Pelosi said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to have people on the committee that want to espouse disinformation. This committee is about information, not disinformation. So she did not allow the Republicans to seat those members. And as a result, there are only these two members, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinziger, who are you know basically renegade Republicans at this point. But what we have is this sort of big unanimity of purpose among the committee members that we didn't really have before in congressional committees where they just want to get to the truth. And so when we put together our podcast, we you know deliberately wanted it to be a story for the ages. We want it to be something you can listen to today. You can listen to all eight episodes. You can listen to them on your 4th of July vacation. You can listen to them on the second anniversary of January 6th, the January 6th attack. Whatever happens in the hearings, that's a bonus. That adds to our knowledge, but doesn't really fundamentally shift our narrative. And that's what we feel extremely proud of. And also, indeed, we are going to be doing a couple of bonus episodes to be processing that new information as it comes in. And I should mention at this point that you and I are speaking June 9th this evening. The um, The congressional hearings are going to be begin to be broadcast on uh, nationwide on, on television networks, except for Fox, of course. You know, one of the things that we've found ourselves talking quite a lot about in our podcast over the last couple of years is fake news, this idea of disinformation and lack of trust in media. You know, recognizing that this is a story of, of national import, how did that sort of play into your approach or your your ideal when you're looking at this, that we're putting together a document that's going to explain this so that people will understand it, a way to put out information that hopefully people will be able to trust and be able to understand. Well, that was the animating principle, you know, and to put together this podcast, we, you know, I mean, we spoke to the people that you hear in the podcast, but we spoke to dozens more. We read through, I mean, probably our own tens of thousands of pages of records. We sat through you know, so many hours of hearings and court procedures. We fact-checked everything. We just really wanted to make sure that we really understood the story, and we were going to bring to it a journalistic rigor that, you know, we hope translates. I mean, that said, you know, one of the things that's really pernicious about disinformation is that it contains the seeds of <sighs> its own denial. So when you put out a piece of disinformation or misinformation, not only do you put out something that is wrong and that, you know, can lead people to do terrible things, including violence, but you send along with it a, a pre-rebuttal of the response to it. So people are not, you know, obviously coming to these hearings with an open mind. People who believe the big lie, the lie about the elections, also believe that anything that is said to rebut that or to elucidate that is somehow false. And this has had, you know, not just the sort of, you know, between November 2020 and January 2021 amount of time to sink in, two months. It's been now 17 months of election mis- and disinformation. 
so I don't think that we have illusions about, you know, people hearing our podcast and suddenly seeing the light. But what we do know for sure is that people tell us we now understand. We never really knew there was so much to learn about January 6th. We didn't really get this. And that, I think, is the process that we feel proud of in our podcast, Will Be Wild. And I think we will also see more of with the Select Committee, which is an understanding of the scope and breadth and fullness of this story in a way that people can tell it to each other. And that, I think, is one of the very important goals of these hearings. Yeah, the more scope that you can give to this and explain, you know, that the rise of white nationalism, the rise of uh, domestic terrorism, you know, misinformation sort of feeds this. I think that that helps. I don't know about you, but as a journalist, sometimes I get disheartened wondering if truth is enough because there are so many people who are who are skeptical or are questioning it. And this is not me saying that you shouldn't be skeptical, but this idea of, you know, I'm reporting stuff, I'm getting the sources correct, and yet people aren't receptive to that information. Do you ever get discouraged with something like that? You know, I'm a journalist. You know, I know how to do this. I know how to report. I know how to get things right. And I know how to tell stories. I mean, you know, it's been a very challenging few years, but it's what I know how to do. So I'm not sure what else to do. So I keep doing it. <laughs> That's the exact right answer. And the other thing that, that I thought that, that you've done really well in, the, in Will Be Wild is this isn't just, you know, you're not talking to the department heads. You're not talking to, you know, law enforcement. You're not talking to politicians. For me, the powerful stories are, you know, the one a member, I think of the, it was the three percenters. Maybe it wasn't three percenters. The trans man or trans woman who was... Um, Oath Keepers. Uh, the Oath Keepers, who's currently in jail. Then also the other, the man who was Ga- a member Guy of... Guy Reffitt of Texas. Yeah. And he, he was affiliated with the Three Percenters, yeah. Yeah, and their their family. I, that whole story around, around the family and the impact that that behavior that the father had on that family, the dam- dynamics of the family, I thought that was really powerful. And I think it speaks to the larger issue of sort of extremism and how it's playing out in people's homes. Knowing someone an acquaintance or a family member who, you know, believes a lot of disinformation and feels activated in some way. One of the things that we found in the course of reporting this podcast is that, you know, many people are mm, only one or two degrees separated from people who were at the attack on the Capitol. As people watched it, you know, there was a sense of like, who are these people? And as we looked into it, we found, well, you know, (laughs) they are 40% of, of the country. You know, there were police officers, there were firefighters, sheriffs, people who held political office, people from your hometown, people you went to high school with. And it is a central struggle of our democracy, how we are all going to talk together. So the podcast wrapped up at eight episodes, and then you have these extra episodes. The the extra episodes, are they are they focused on... The findings of the hearings, you know, how are they different than what you had done before? They are going to be looking at what the select committee turns up and sort of processing that, but processing it through, you know, the lens of the issues that we've looked at, radicalization, the hollowing out of government, questions of disinformation. Those are the themes that we will be tracking through these hearings and then, you know, sort of sharing with listeners our thought about, you know, where the narrative lands when we've, when we've taken it all in. Yeah. Do you have any expectation of 
that this is a, a story that's going to continue on beyond the hearings, a story in the sense that you're going to be covering. It's going to continue on. We know it's. Mm, I mean, I think that we'll see. The answer is we'll see. There's certainly more to come. There's going to be a report. There are obviously some very, very significant ca- cases in the Justice Department. Maybe there will be more. So the answer is uh, to be determined. So what are you hoping that comes out of this, these hearings? What is your best hope? Well, I mean, I think that there's a, you know, sort of a lot of different tiers of what could happen. I, I think one of the very big questions that's before us is, you know, the sort of Watergate question. What did the president know and when did he know it? Regarding the attack, we know that he knew, you know, he was actively involved in trying to overthrow the government. You know, he had pressured his vice president not to certify the votes, that he pressured his attorney general to tell states not to send in their electors, that he considered asking the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Defense to impound voting machines, though that never happened. So there were multiple ways in which President Trump tried to block the peaceful transfer of power that we know of. But I think what is not well understood is his role in the attack, if any. So I'm looking forward to to understanding that. And I also feel like, you know, the Justice Department is, you know, Merrick Garland is trying to be very much the attorney general who is does not respond to political pressure to distinguish himself from the, you know, previous presidency. But he's received criticism for some quarters for sort of, you know, carrying that out too far. So to not be the president or the Justice Department that's seen as being political, some have said, is making him even more wary to act in this case. And and certainly that's understandable. But, you know, I do think that members of Congress have said quite directly that they hope the findings that they present in these hearings will encourage the Justice Department to act. So there's no direct way, no direct mechanism, but there's obviously an indirect mechanism for that to happen. And then I think that there's a question of sort of, you know, more general awareness. There was a period after January 6 where members of the Republican Party, businesses drew back from this. I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but the Professional Golf Association said we are not going to hold our tournament in Trump Bedminster because of the insurrection. And Trump lost some government contracts. And there was a big business reaction. You know, that kind of faded away. But I think the question is, is information raised at this hearing going to pressure parties that want to be seen as above it all to say, you know, I don't want to be associated with an attack on the, on the Capitol. So we will see that. And the last thing, which I think is going to happen regardless, and I mean, the committee has already overperformed. They've already gotten more information out into the public sphere than I would have expected, than I think a lot of people would have expected. And I think what we should expect in these hearings is more of that, more of a sense of delivering the complete stories, all the details. They interviewed over 1,000 witnesses, read 140,000 pages of documents. They had subpoena power. We didn't. So I am looking forward to the fruits of that vast search. And I think history will be grateful for it as well. Yeah, I do too. And I think uh, you and Ilya, the the podcast that you've done, I think have done a lot to explain and sort of shed light 
on this very concerning period in our time. And hopefully people will have learned something from it. And perhaps there'll be consequences. Perhaps there'll be, perhaps there'll be a sunshine tomorrow, I guess. I don't know how best to put that. Andrea, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for your interest. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.